I've titled our message this morning, Defeating the Seductive Power of Distraction. Say that with me. Defeating the Seductive Power of Distraction. Again, Defeating the Seductive Power of Distraction. Amen. How many times a day would you say you get distracted? <laughs> You're focused on a task. Someone just got distracted. I hear that phone. <laughs> it happens, right? Distractions happen. And... Uh, you're focused on a task or, and something or someone interrupts that focus and you get distracted. What's the source of your distraction? What is it? Is it technology? Were you distracted by a text? Uh, by that notification on your phone? Uh, an email or, or that phone call? Or, or did your search bar distract you down some internet alley? Oh, that reminded me of that, which led to that, and then that. And ten minutes later, we think, now what was I originally doing? Uh, in his book, The Shallows, what the internet is doing to our brains, author Nicholas Carr wrote, the net is designed to be an interruption system. A machine geared to dividing attention. We willingly accept the loss of concentration, the division of our attention, and the fragmentation of our focus in return for the wealth of compelling or diverting information. He talks about how technology has created a compulsion loop, a compulsion loop in our brain for, for novelty, constant stimulation and immediate gratification. Do you know that? It's why someone once said, if I had a dollar for every time I got distracted, I wish I had some ice cream. <laughs> How many times a day do you get distracted? But it's not all technology. Now, some of us are distracted by worry. Someone we love is going through something hard and we can't stop asking the what if questions. What if? What if? And, and we can't stay focused because we're worried about them. We care. We want to fix it, but we can't. We're distracted. We're distracted. Maybe it's your job that distracts you. And some of us are sitting right here right now and we're thinking about how to deal with tomorrow morning's difficult conversation or tomorrow morning's challenges. And as a result, even in this space, it's just hard to be fully present because we have an impossible, you fill in the blank, an impossible employer, an impossible colleague, an impossible assignment. We're distracted. We're distracted. Some distractions are good. For instance, when the Apostle Paul was on his way to kill Christians in Damascus, Jesus mercifully distracted him. And for that divine distraction, we have much of the New Testament. Thank you, Jesus. And this brings up a test question. 
meant to discern the value of my distraction. Here it is. Does my distraction divert my attention to something of greater importance or lesser importance? You see, the most dangerous distractions are those which divert our attention from the greatness and the glory and the splendor and the beauty and the majesty of God. The most dangerous distractions sidetrack our orientation from the greatest person in existence to countless lesser ones. And that is the seductive power of distraction, that I would divert my eyes from the greater to the lesser, from the grander to the, to the weaker, from the almighty to the tiny. Who will help me? Who will deliver me from this seductive power of distraction? Well, take your Bibles and meet me in Nehemiah chapter 6. Verses 1 through 14. We are journeying through the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. And the book of Nehemiah tells a story about how God used Nehemiah to regather Israel after the devastation of exile. Can you imagine our nation being conquered and then the, the, the leadership class being taken to a foreign country for 70 years and then imagine returning and then 90 years after that, there's really been no improvement. But then God chose Nehemiah. God chose him to rebuild and revitalize the capital city of Jerusalem, the city of David. And Nehemiah is rebuilding the wall of the city so that the people of the city will worship the God over the city. See? See, the, the point of Nehemiah is not about a wall construction project. The point of Nehemiah is actually for worship. And Nehemiah in chapter 6 is almost complete when three distractions tempt him off the wall. And so let me just front load our big idea so that you know what's coming. How do we defeat distraction? We defeat distraction with distraction. In these verses, Nehemiah defeats three lesser distractions by means of one greater distraction of God. God, God's calling, God's reality, and God's word. As we look at these verses, we're going to see how God's calling defeats the distraction of meaningless activity. Then we'll see how God's reality defeats the distraction of man-made fantasy. And then we'll see how God's word defeats the distraction of disobedient timidity. We defeat distraction with distraction. We defeat these lesser, puny distractions with the greater, glorious distraction of God. God's calling, God's reality, God's word. Nehemiah 6, 1 through 14. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors in the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come and let us meet together in Hacheferim, 
in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way. And I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. And then I sent to him saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. Well, they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Now, when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And, and what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God. According to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. This is the word of the Lord. So the wall is progressing. Its height is raising, the mortar is setting, and Jerusalem is rebuilding. And it's happened at a remarkable pace. Uh, recall, in chapter 1, Nehemiah had prayed for the city. And then in chapter 2, uh, Nehemiah realized that he was the answer to his prayer for the city as God had commissioned him to go to Jerusalem to rebuild. And then in chapter 3, we saw that the city rallied and went to work. People from all walks of life. And in chapter 4, they prevailed against external enemy opposition. And then in chapter 5, they had to face the fact that they were not treating one another internally the way God wanted them to. What's the point of a new wall without a new heart? And so having overcome external conflicts and internal conflicts here in chapter 6 the project begins to draw to completion and Nehemiah's enemies make one last ditch effort to stop the wall they want to cut off the head they want to kill Nehemiah think about that for a minute I mean this isn't a movie this isn't fiction this is not a play 
It's a memoir of one person's experience, recalling a time in his life when others wanted to take his life. Never had anybody that upset with me. <laughs> Assassinate the pastor. I haven't gotten that note. Thank you, Lord. But here, Nehemiah, they really want him gone. They want him dead because he's a threat to their worldview. They see themselves as premier ward bosses of a small sector of the Persian Empire, and their, their thinking is just so tiny and puny that a restored Jerusalem threatens them, and they can't fathom a universe where Jerusalem's elevation would raise the tide for all. So with the construction punch list complete, except for hanging the huge doors in the gates, Nehemiah gets word from the courier, Sanballat and Geshem request an audience with you 27 miles from Jerusalem in a village called Hekepherim. It's a Hebrew word that means lions, lions, at a plain called Ono. So it, it's, it's neutral territory. Let's meet, they say. Let's meet. Let's meet. On the surface, it appears conciliatory. Let's meet. Let's meet. Nehemiah, we'd like to congratulate you. Wow, what a leader you are. Let's meet. Let's meet. Um, and we, we'd like to gather as equals. Let's meet. We want to talk about resetting our relationship and, and uh, making the future together as peaceable as it can be. Let's meet at Ono. Let's meet. Oh, how easy it would have been for Nehemiah to say to himself, you know, well, okay, all we have to do is just hang the doors and the substantial project completion is done. Uh, Brother Hanani, uh, why don't you take care of, of uh, the punch list and I'll go see what they want because uh, I want to be reasonable and, you know. But Nehemiah suspects foul play. He says, oh, no. 27 miles away, oh, oh, no. Uh-uh. Do I look stupid? They must think I'm stupid. Do I look stupid? I mean, if you really want to congratulate me, why don't you come to where I am? If you really want to acknowledge the project, why make me leave my post? No, no, no. I don't have time. Verse 3, this beautiful verse. I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. There it is. No. Now, why could Nehemiah say that? Because in the face of this lesser distraction, the distraction of meaningless activity, talk about death by meeting. Nehemiah is captivated by the greater distraction of God's calling on his life. One of the reasons why Nehemiah was resolute in his no was that he knew exactly what God had called him to do. He was conscious of his calling. He knew that God had called him to rebuild the city so that the people in the city could worship the God of the city. That's his calling. Do you know what a calling is? Consider this definition. Your calling is your God-given conviction about your life's direction. Your calling. Your God-given conviction about your life's direction. People, people who are called have a conviction in their heart about what it is God wants their life to look like. And it starts with prayer. 
Nehemiah chapter 1 is, is mainly prayer. Lord, you know, what, what is your will? What's your will for my life? What is your will for your people? How can what you want in my life, how can I participate in what you're doing in your work for your people? God, what do you want? What do you want? Generally, your calling will track with how God has gifted you. God has given each of us here a shape, a shape. Your spiritual gifts, your heart, your abilities, your personality, your experiences, your spiritual gifts, your heart, your abilities, your personality, and your experiences. You, you, have, you have family of origin experiences, you have educational experiences, you have vocational experiences, and you have painful experiences. And God never wastes a hurt, does he? Your shape. What is your shape? What, what, what abilities has he given you? Am I supposed to teach with those abilities? Am I supposed to shepherd my children full time at home with those abilities? Am I, am I supposed to do construction? Am I supposed to do masonry? Am I supposed to enter emergency services, fire services, law enforcement? Am I supposed to heal bodies with medicine? What desires has God put in my heart and life? Well, I mean, what would I like to do? And what is it that I and others can see? Wow, you're good at that. You're good at that. My goodness, others affirm, yes, yes, you can do this. You can do this. Your calling is your God-given conviction about your life's direction. And there's a part of that process that you need to own, and that's part of that process that is part of the community. Nehemiah's calling led him to the most powerful person on earth, led him to the palace of Artaxerxes, but it did not end there. That wasn't the end of Nehemiah's journey in his calling. That was just another station. It was just another place. No, from there, from the palace, God sent Nehemiah to Jerusalem. And four times, Nehemiah's enemies tried to distract him. And four times, Nehemiah declined with a greater distraction. The same message returned. I'm doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Beloved, where are you tempted to appease people who do not respect what it is God has called you to do? Let me put it this way. Someone else's need does not constitute your call. I, I want to free us from the distracting, unrealistic expectations of people, well-meaning or not, who pull us away, well-meaning or not, from what God has called us to do. R right here, right now, some of us can look over our shoulders and we can see that we've been pulling a long freight train 
with boxcar after boxcar loaded with unfinished tasks, things that you really want to accomplish, but there they are, unfinished, and they're just dogging your tracks. And truth be told, truth be told, these boxcars are not the boxcars we ought to be pulling. They are instead boxcars that others have asked us to pull, and we just have a hard time saying no. And as a result, we find ourselves distracted from the God-given conviction of our life's direction. And my point is that the greater distraction of God's call will keep us from the lesser distractions of half-empty boxcars. Let me put it this way. To defeat the distraction of meaningless activity, we must possess the nerve to ask this question, who are you willing to disappoint? It sounds so unloving coming from a minister, doesn't it? But it's not. It's actually a very clarifying question. Because, see, I'm not asking, whom will you choose to not love? You don't get to ask that question. I'm asking, what are you really pursuing in your time commitments? That's what I'm asking. Whose approval are you chasing? That's what I'm asking. Are you chasing God's approval or someone else's? Nehemiah had a God-given conviction about his life's direction, and that made it very easy for him to disappoint Sanballat and company because he absolutely refused to disappoint God, I'm doing a great work. I cannot come down. What is your great work? What is your great work? God's call defeats the distraction of meaningless activity. Well, Sanballat just wasn't going to give up, was he? I mean... He went four times, he's going to go a fifth time. And so the fifth time, Sanballat sent a letter with these words. Here's, here's what Sanballat says in this letter. This letter says, I've been talking to some people, and they say that you're planning a rebellion, and they say that you're building the wall so that you can occupy Jerusalem, and they say that you want to be Israel's new king, and they say that you've recruited prophets to proclaim your throne, and, and oh, when Artaxerxes hears about this, you're going to be in big trouble, they say. So, let's meet. <laughs> and verse 5 says that Sanballat, sent this letter it was a do you see verse 5 an open letter what's that mean well well back then a closed letter would have been uh, sealed with wax with an official stamp for authenticity and only nehemiah would have opened it but this letter has no seal it, so it's intentionally without a wax insignia why Neum, uh, excuse me, Sanballat wants the various couriers to read its contents while en route to Nehemiah. Why? Why? So, so that the rumor mill could flow, you see? Rumors will spread. So what does Nehemiah do? He replies quickly and economically in verse 8. Then I sent to him saying, No such things as you say have been done. 
for you are inventing them out of your own mind. Literally, verse 8. From your own heart, you are devising them. So Nehemiah didn't try to chase down the rumors. He didn't send people back to every town to retrace the route to make sure that his side of the story was told. He didn't care. He didn't care. His reply was, no, you're wrong. You're just making this up. It's an illusion. So, you know, if I were plotting a rebellion against the king, why would you, a neighboring governor, want to be seen in a meeting with me? Wouldn't that look like collaboration? Furthermore, if what you say is true, wouldn't it just make sense for you to contact Artaxerxes directly? And if you did, you know what would happen. You know there would be an investigation. You know there would be a very thorough investigation. And you know that if that investigation showed that you falsely accused the cupbearer to the king, you would share the penalty of your accusation. Man, they're just trying to spook Nehemiah, who, who knew he had the confidence of both king and queen. I mean, think about it. He asked for the king's credit card, and the king said, here, take it. He trusts him. He's got his visa card. Uh, Nehemiah, he's not going to be intimidated by Sanballat. At the same time, he prays for finishing power. Oh, now, God, strengthen my hands. Yeah. Yeah, God's reality defeats the distraction of, of, of man-made fantasies. And we need to hear that in our culture today. Isn't it true? Isn't it true that the mind just chases after fantasies? The, the mind is a master illusionist. Isn't it possible to spend our entire lives shadowboxing invented unrealities of our own illusions or the illusions of others? <laughs> Nothing seems more real than the perceived rejection of an oddly raised eyebrow or an inopportune yawn or the scowl of a stranger. The mind can spin an illusion of confusion out of the smallest, most meaningless experience. And, and in that sense, it's very, very creative, but it's it's a dull creativity because it so often manufactures the same boring story about our fears and our anxieties. Nehemiah says, there is no reality in what you are saying. No such things as you say have been done. Now our heart races. We pass someone down the hall. Did, you know, did she look at me? Is he avoiding me? What is that all about? But, but, but only because our minds have fooled our bodies into thinking something real is happening. And the antidote to the lesser distraction of illusion is God's greater reality. Because you see, Nehemiah's wall is no fantasy. You can go to Jerusalem today. Archaeology has left us a remnant of Nehemiah's wall. It's a wall not based on my personal truth or my constructed truth, but capital T truth. It's there, period. And we need to remember this, especially in our American culture today. Um, this is probably going to hurt. Do you think about the ways American culture chases fantasy? 
1929, millions of people, highly skilled in their jobs, brought America to ruin because they chased a mass illusion. Back then, stock market prices rose and people bought and that forced prices up further and that brought in more people and eventually the process became self-perpetuating. Every increase brought in more people convinced of their God-given right to get rich and it was mass fantasy. There, there was no correlation between the rising worth of a company on the market and the actual strength of the company and people became suckers. And we seem to still want to chase that in our world today. We, we live in a world that claims that the solution to identity confusion is just to be allowed to call yourself whatever it is you want to call yourself. And if need be, to have someone cut on your body so that your body will cooperate with whatever your mind thinks you are. We live in a culture that says that a government can define marriage however it wants. We live in a culture that claims that a baby's heartbeat inside a womb is not enough to declare that baby legally human. And we, we live in a culture that has an embarrassing history of mistreating humans outside the womb. And in all of these examples, it is the very American assumption that truth originates from the human heart instead of the heart of God. Can we just listen to the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 17, 9? He says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And, and will we listen to the wisdom of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. One way to state the aim of Windsor Road Christian Church is that we want to help your heart become undeceivable. We're here to make undeceivable hearts for Christ. That's what we want. We want to focus on building a gospel way of seeing and thinking and feeling and act, acting in a way that liberates hearts from delusion and deception and the misery that goes with that. Our, our mission is to keep you from becoming a sucker. And as your pastor who loves you, we are here to walk with anyone who struggles with confusion. We're here to patiently sit with others in their struggles, whatever they are, and to be vulnerable enough by sharing our own struggles because everybody in this room struggles. And we want to come alongside those who feel conflicted about issues like identity and say, we love you, we're not going to treat you as less than. We will treat you with love and dignity. We will sit with you and help you experience liberation from the distraction of mass illusion. And so we pray with Nehemiah, God, strengthen our hands. Save us from our un realities.
meaningless activity, man-made fantasy, and finally, disobedient timidity. God's word defeats the distraction of disobedient timidity. So Nehemiah's last distraction actually came from the inside, where one of the prophets, the prophets, pleaded with him to trespass into temple space for personal protection. Verse 10, now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehedabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. It's almost like a prophetic poetic couplet they're coming to kill you they're coming to kill you by night they're coming to kill you they're coming to kill you by night but but nehemiah immediately rejected his word verse 11 i I said should such a man as i run away what man such as i could go into the temple and live i will not go in nehemiah knew that he would be committing a crime if he encroached the temple space because only priests could enter the temple area nehemiah wasn't a priest These prophets had claimed to hear a word from the Lord, and in fact, they were hired by Sanballat to make Nehemiah disobey God and derail his calling. This had to be discouraging because these were Hebrews. Hebrews attempting to betray a Hebrew. And yet Nehemiah very quickly figured them out. And you know why, don't you? Because he knew the word. He was distracted by the the Word of God. He knew from Deuteronomy 18 that false prophets are not to be feared, period. He so saturated himself with scriptures that like Jeremiah of old, Nehemiah was a fortress. Jeremiah 1, 17, 18, and 19. Stand up and tell them everything that I command you. Do not be intimidated by them. Do not be intimidated by them. Today I am the one who has made you a fortified city, an iron pillar, bronze walls against the whole land. So you understand, don't you, that Jeremiah was very much marginalized. Nehemiah, very much, very much, he's very much in the minority here. I mean, it's easy to stand up and tell him everything when everybody's behind you, but that's not the case here. They will fight against you, but never prevail over you, since I am with you to rescue you. Nehemiah suffered from the pleasant, greater distraction of God's word. Psalm 119, 157. You want to memorize a verse this week? Memorize this one. Psalm 119, 157. Many are my persecutors and my adversaries, but I do not swerve from your decrees. There it is. Here's here's a man. This is why his name means the comfort of Yahweh. He brings comfort to whatever room because, because he's dependent on God's call, God's reality, and God's word. And these greater distractions from above defeated the puny distractions from below. And oh, by the way, Oh, by the way, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, they just fade into obscurity. This is the last we hear of Sanballat and Geshem. Tobiah shows up in chapter 13, but that's, that's for another message. 
Their, their opposition was most intense in these verses, but only because they were expending their last shells. They're out of ammo. Nehemiah stood firm. Church, listen to me. God has allotted every one of us here 24 hours a day and not one minute more. And 24 hours a day is evidently enough to do what he has called us to do. Nehemiah shows us that. And Nehemiah prepares us for the greater Nehemiah, whose single-minded focus was the greater distraction of his heavenly father. You think about Jesus' ministry. What do we have in the Gospels? Three or four years? Think about that. We, we, we have a written account of his ministry. Three or four years, four years at most. He cared deeply about people and their hurts. He was full of compassion. Yet for every hundred he healed, there were thousands that he did not heal or minister to. Was it because he didn't care? Of course not. No, he knew that a need did not constitute a call. But a greater need was met by the greater call, and Jesus' greater call was to seek and save the lost by his all-sufficient death on the cross for your sins and mine. Because it's unforgiven sin that's going to keep us from our Heavenly Father. And Jesus met that on the cross by substituting himself for us. And he would not be distracted from that greater call. Neither meaningless activity, nor man-made fantasy, nor disobedient timidity would keep Jesus from his call. Luke 9.51 says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to Jerusalem. That's our, that's our God. And after his death, burial, and resurrection... And after this pleasant distraction of Saul of Tarsus, the Apostle Paul, Paul would write to a small city in Philippi, and he would say in Philippians 3, 14, but this one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Oh, and then one more verse, and I'll sit down. <laughs> Paul writes another church. A little church in uh, modern-day Turkey, in a sleepy little community on the Lycus Valley, the city of Colossae, they haven't even excavated it yet. But there was this small church, and Paul wrote the letter to the Colossians. And just before Paul concludes Colossians, he says in Colossians 4, 17, And say to Archippus, here it is, See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. You hear me, Archippus? You're out there. I know you are. I see you. See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received from the Lord. That is your greater distraction. You know your calling? What ministry have you, has God given you, Archippus? What abilities has he placed in you, Archippus? What opportunities have come your way, Archippus? What godly and wise people have affirmed the gifts that God has put in your life. Archippus, hear me. Listen to me. 
Fulfill the ministry you have received from the Lord. Stay on the wall. You're doing a great work. Don't come down. Amen? Amen.